All right. Hey, guys. Welcome to Righteous Remnant. I'm here with Dennis Cole, where we're going to talk about how to pray, vote, and defend. Man, we have a lot going this past week, and we have a myriad of different topics we want to talk about. Uh, how are you doing, Dennis? Doing good, man. I'm excited. Me too. Me too. Man, what a crazy week so far. The Kraken has been released. Yeah. We're back in lockdown again because, yeah. you know, it, it worked so wonderfully the first time. Man, how are you? How are you holding up during all these uh, crazy times in our country? Yeah, I'm doing. I'm doing okay overall. I feel like um, I'm, you know, I'm definitely ready for this thing to end in terms of all the the lockdown, quarantine stuff. Like I'm, I I really miss prayer rooms. Is what I really miss. I really miss prayer rooms being open and having a place just to, you know, meet with God, but also to connect with people too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm an extrovert and I love fellowship and just to be quarantined in a house is, is definitely not for me. Oh, yeah. And scriptures is backing us up on this one. You know, I feel <laughs> we need to meet like it's important for churches to meet. Yeah. Um, so I guess this leads to my first question. Should churches open up? Yeah, great question. I, I think so. Within reason, within reason. You know, I think it's OK to. um I'm, you know, I'm not in the camp that says like you can never meet virtually or something like that ever. I, I think that there are times of emergency where, you know, pastors can, you know, hey, we're gonna we're gonna separate and, and you know not meet for this week or potentially meet online now. You know, like a lot of churches are doing. But I I, I don't think it's really warranted right now. I don't think it's warranted right now. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I you know the the mortality rate on this disease is so low, right? I, I, do you know what the mortality rate is at this point? I know it's it's less than 1%. Yeah, it's, it's less than 1%. I, I think, just don't yeah. know how much less. If it's like 0.1 or 0.01%, you know, yeah. it's really low. And especially, you know, um, if you're if you're not over 70, if you don't have any, you know, sure. you know other issues in with your health. So I would say for the vast majority of people, the, the risk is so incredibly low that, um, you know, it's it it's it's more symptom of where we've come to as a society. We don't know what danger actually is, <laughs> you know, like like it's just like this danger pops up and it's like oh my gosh, it's like the end of the world. We need to shut everything down. We need to be super careful. Now I understand. I think there are political motivations. I think the whole election stuff. Um, they were thinking about the election when they were advocating all of this COVID lockdown stuff. I think that's definitely part of the calculus. Um, but look for us in the church. We have so many reasons to meet together, man. Like, mm. we have so many reasons. Like, people are spiritually dying right now, right? I mean, I've heard a number of reports that suicides are way up all over. I But that suicides are just symptomatic of a larger phenomenon, which is that so many people are depressed, right? So many people are depressed. We're, we're very social creatures, you know? Um, and more than that, like, the reason we go to church is not primarily to meet with other people or to get some benefit for ourselves, right? The primary reason we go to church is to engage in a corporate worship. And I think that's, when I think about this whole issue, I think that's the part that's most telling here is that, you know, all the arguments that I see these days are all like, oh, you know, it's unloving, people could get sick, you know. But the reality is that's not the first reason why I think of when I think of why do I go to church, right? Why do I engage in a corporate worship session? It's not for me, right? It's not for the benefit that I'm getting out of it primarily, right? The 
the primary thing that is happening is I'm giving God what he wants, right? right? And he delights in corporate worship. Like, um, I used to talk about this, you know, when I was pastoring actively, like, that's the reason we do this, right? When you read scripture and you see this really interesting phenomenon, especially when you look at the Old Testament, um, many of the prophets talk about, um, they give these prophecies where Israel and Judah are worshiping other gods, and it's always likened to um, to sex, to adultery, like you're sleeping with these other gods, right? Yeah. These analogies. And um, I think that that's telling of the way that God feels about it, right? There's, there's something where um, it brings God great pleasure to receive worship, and when you're giving worship to other gods, it feels like a personal betrayal for him, mm. right? Yeah. And that's that's the part that I don't think people understand. A lot of times when, when we as Christians, when we come to worship, we're always thinking about what we get out of it, you know, what benefit, uh, I, don't, I didn't really like this worship session, I didn't really like this service, something like that. We, we're so critical, you know, especially like, you know, the, the whole consumer culture in Christianity right now. It's like you go to whatever church, you know, offers the most, you know, amenities and the best snack buffets and all this kind of stuff, you know, and we've created this monster of consumerism. I just think it's really, um, you know, it's telling about this narcissism in the church where we've turned church into another type of service for us, but that's not really what it is. Okay, the reason we go to church is because um, we're bringing pleasure to the Lord. Like He delights in our worship; He enjoys it. It's it's something that's valuable. It might it's in in some ways it's the most valuable thing that we can do, right? And I understand that's a very different worldview. That's a Christian worldview. That's a biblical worldview, right? I see the world in terms of you know there's humans are not at the center of my worldview. Right, that's the big difference, I think, between the Christian worldview and the humanistic worldview. And the humanistic worldview is the one that's really the strongest in our culture. And so most Christians don't realize how humanistic their worldview is. It's like the center of their worldview is really humanity, right? So they when they think of how can I, you know, what would be my best life? What's the best life I could live? You know, they would think of, oh, I'm gonna touch a lot of people, or I'm going to impact a lot of people, or I'm going to be famous, right? Or I'm going to be, you know, rich and all this kind of stuff. All of those things are very um, human-centric oriented, right? I remember I had a, I had a, um, you know, I felt like God spoke to me once, and he, he said, Dennis, where do you think the center, where's the center of the universe? And I was like, I don't know, like, New York City? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, New York. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and and I had to really think about it. I just I had to reset some parameters, you know, and you know, he, and I realized like, no, the center of the universe is the throne room of God, Amen. right? So yeah. when you are in the throne room of God, and I think there's this mystical thing that happens. Right when we get into an amazing time of worship, right, you can feel it. As you know, I love worship for many years, and there's a difference. You could feel the presence of God. You know, you can feel, you know, the atmosphere shift. You can feel when you really break in in a service into the presence. And there's this mystical sense in which we come into the presence of God. Right. I think a lot of times we think of it as the presence of God comes to us. Mm-hmm. I I tend to think of it more like no. I think there's a way in which we are entering into the presence. In some, it's it's a mystical kind of a spiritual thing but um you know when you when you do you're in the most important place in the universe right i think that i like i feel the reality of that so that's that's the paradigm i have when i'm like you know what's the most important thing i could be doing in my life 
Well, I think it's it's to be meeting with God. Amen. And if that's with, you know, a thousand people, you know, or with just by myself and God, that's that's fine. But there definitely is this thing where when we gather corporately, there is a grace to break into the presence of God. And so I'm sorry for the really long-winded answer, but that's what I think is missing from this whole conversation about COVID, right? Like, from God's perspective, what should we be doing? Yeah. And what's suffering because of all of these lockdowns? Well, I think if, if you know, Christians and Christian leaders are being honest, worship is suffering. Like, yeah. you know, the, the idea that we can have the, the exact same experience online, nobody thinks that, right? Nobody thinks that their experience with an online worship service is exactly the same as meeting in person, unless you've been going to church where your in-person services are freaking terrible. <laughs> you know, like, I guess that's possible, right? Oh, it's, it's like the same. All right. But if you have, like, a decent service where you, you really um, encounter God and you get convicted by the messages, right, and you have really life-giving fellowship, this is not the same. You know, this is not the same experience. And yeah. people are dying. I mean, I know so many Christians are struggling like crazy right now. And as, as Christian leaders, that should be part of our consideration. Like, you know, when I look at leaders like Andy Stanley and he's like, oh, yeah, we're going to shut everything down for, I don't know when he said, like sometime in 2021, right? And I'm like, doesn't it bother you? I don't, you know, like, help me understand. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's indicative of Christian culture today. Uh, you know, when you go to a mega church, you go in, you sit down for an hour and 15 minutes, and you probably don't talk to anybody. And if you do, it's two or three minutes. Hey, how are you doing? How's life and all that? You listen to the sermon, you worship, and then right after that, there's a mass exodus for the next 15 minutes when everybody's going to their cars and there's no fellowship. So if that's what they're used to um, for, you know, how many years they're going to church, transitioning online, I guess not it's kind of, huh? yeah, it's yeah. not that, yeah, not much of a difference, you know? So, uh, and, and I really want to hone in on that. What is true fellowship? What does it mean to be a church? And I think a lot of churches today are so focused on the entertainment aspect of it. And I'm not saying all churches, but, but yeah. you know, let's call a spade a spade. I mean, that's what we see in a lot of churches. Yeah. And, and there's no real loving each other. Yeah. Jesus said that the world will know you by the love that you have for each other. And if people go to just a regular service today, are we really loving each other? So for me, man, uh, we've missed the mark even before COVID. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I think yeah. that's a really interesting, you know, point and idea to, to explore a little bit because mm -hmm. I tend to be pretty hard on a lot of mega churches. Um, I want to take a second and just say, you know, I actually do appreciate a lot of what um, megachurches bring to the table. You know, yeah. like in particular, there is this really spirit, the spirit of excellence, right? It's yeah. like, it's the same thing when you go to, um, you know, a, a popular chain restaurant versus a mom and pop shop or something like that. Just the level of detail that you can tell they took into account, you know, like they care, all the signs are professionally made, you know, like all, it, in, 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 it gives you a sense of credibility of trust for them. Yes. Right. And I, I understand that. Like, I actually really appreciate, you know, kind of the megachurch world and the attention to detail, and how excellent they are thinking through everything. They're very well, you know, prepared for everything. And that's kind of the opposite from what you see in some of the, you know, the more charismatic prayer circles you know, that I've been a part of where it's like the opposite. 
<laughs> they don't care at all about those types of details. And so that's the world where I come more from. So I just wanted to say right off the bat that I do think that there is uh, an aspect of righteousness there that is important, right? And I wish that, you know, myself and, um, you know, many ministries have been a part of would care more about details and would plan and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I think that's important. That being said, I think that there is a huge problem with the fact that this, you know, style of megachurch has become kind of the de facto, you know, epitome of what the Christian experience is supposed to look like in America, right? Most churches, they they would lovingly, they would l- gladly trade their 100-person church for, you know, to, to lead a 1,000-person megachurch or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah. I mean? And that's you know, that's, you know, those guys get invited to speak at all the conferences. They're always like the leaders of megachurches, right? I remember I once went to a conference where, um, you know, one of the speakers was was sharing and he just said, hey, what is I want to take a second and defend Joel Osteen, right? Because Joel Osteen was one of the other speakers at the conference. And he's like, you know, some of you are speaking really badly about him, but do you know how many people go to his church? Hmm. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, enough said. Like, he, like for him... That was all the evidence he needed about why Joel Osteen, you know, was worthy of respect and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's just purely the number of people, the number of people at the church, and yeah. that is how you know. I wish I could say that that is like a a weird story. That's literally how it is everywhere. You know, like the bigger your community, the bigger your church, the more respect you get. You know, and I look at guys like um, who's a good one, like Craig Rochelle. I think Craig Rochelle is an amazing speaker one of the most amazing speakers real faith he's one of the most amazing leadership you know gurus out there i think but the thing that irks me with him is he's always equating fruitfulness to numbers yeah yeah every time i hear him it's all about church growth and you want your church to grow don't you and my answer is always on the inside do i (laughs) like i i think there's I used to hear a lot if it's uh, not a growing church it's a dying church yeah yeah and i'm like Wow, then John the Baptist really failed. What a failure. You know, Jesus really failed because he had the largest church in that region, and then he preached his most controversial sermon in John chapter 6 about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and he killed off a lot of his congregation. You know, and that's my problem with a lot of, of this way of thinking. It's not biblical. It is not biblical, right? Jesus said, I'm the vine. My father's the vine dresser right? He prunes the vine. He cuts off branches that do not bear fruit, right? So that those branches that do bear fruit will bear even more fruit. Yeah. And and this is the big problem. We have, we have such a low level of discernment in the body where if it's just a leafy branch with no fruit, we're like, look how big that tree is. <laughs> look how big that tree is. That is an amazing tree. Let's all try and be like that tree. And meanwhile, I think God looks at the tree and he's like, but there's no fruit here, right? And we see that where Jesus curses, you know, the fig tree. I think that's uh, that's that's prophetic, prophetically significant, right? But it's the same idea. God's not impressed by a giant tree that bears no fruit, right? And that's, I think, how do we discern what fruit is? How do we discern what fruit is? I think a lot of pastors say, well, if I've got a lot of people at my church, that's fruit. I'm like, no. What it could be is if you're offering all these amazing amenities, and by the way, I, I went to a megachurch for about a year, 
and the amenities were amazing. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like I was blown away by how nice it was, you know, Five to be star accommodations. For oh sure. yeah. The accommodations yeah. were amazing. Yeah. Right. But if you're offering that, what you're doing is you are tempting all these other people to go to your church because you're basically paying them. You're, you're spending tons of money to give them stuff that they want. Right. And there's real temptation there. And the question is, are you pulling them out of assignments that they're supposed to be at, places they're supposed to labor in, right, ministries that they're supposed to be, you know, doing something valuable in to make them a spectator at your megachurch? And I think if we're honest with it, that's what happens a lot of times, right? Yeah. And I don't, again, I don't, it's, it's hard to paint with too broad of a brush because megachurches are diverse. Some are doing much better and more fruitful than others. All I'm trying to get at is that the size of your church doesn't impress me, bub. Yeah. Okay, I'm not yeah. impressed by that, right? Like all throughout Scripture, we see leaders who are rejected by many of the people that they're sent to minister to. Look, Jesus was rejected by the nation that he was sent to save, right? And some people are like, you know, well, if if you're not being received, it's because you've got a problem, right? Or if your church is small, it's because you've got all these problems. Now, that that's for sure true. Because lots of church, we all have problems, right? Every church has problems. But the size, that being your primary way of discerning, I think that has really destroyed our ability to discern correctly. Jeremiah was not a failure, okay? Yeah. Jeremiah was not a failure. John the Baptist was not a failure, all right? In a lot of places, Paul went to preach. Yeah, he planted churches, but look, he was rejected by the vast majority of people, right? So this idea that if you're unpopular, or like, you know, people don't like you or whatever, that that's somehow indicative of you not doing the Lord's will. Come on, you're getting this all backwards, in my opinion. And and that, you know, that's just, uh, you know, I think we talked about this before, but the despising of prophets, mm. right? That's what's, what's really happened in American culture where we've despised um, a lot of these prophets. And, um, and because of that, we can't discern what the voice of the Lord really is. And so I actually think that what's going on right now is we, we're seeing a judgment come to the house of the Lord, right? And I think that that fits the pattern. Generally speaking, judgment comes first to the to the church, the people of God, right? And then to the larger community that they serve, right? So I think right now we're in a judgment of the church where the church is being heavily pruned, okay? And that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. I think a lot of churches will close their doors. I think, you know, some mega churches, you know, will shrink um, you know, some other churches will die. That's, I think that's okay, right? I think that's okay. I've been praying for many years that the expression of Christianity would, would be transformed, right? That we wouldn't have, you know, churches that are empty 95% of the time. These giant, beautiful sanctuaries with humongous screens and state-of-the-art sound systems, right? And they're sitting empty 95% of the time, 99% of the time, you know? It's such a waste. It's such a waste, and um, I remember I, I saw. Sorry, I'm I'm being long-winded. Forgive me. No, no, but keep going, brother. I heard. Um, you know, or I I read. This was I read. Um, there was an Indian missionary. I can't remember his name. He's he's a pretty famous Indian missionary. K. P. Yohannan. Yes, K. P. Yeah. Yohannan. Yeah. He talks about the first time he came to America, right? And, and you know, he came from a really impoverished area of India, and he's like, oh my gosh, I realized. You know, we'd been praying and asking God for all the finances that we need. And God had answered our prayers, right? He had given yeah. all the finances that the church needs to, you know, these these Christians in America, and they use all the money to build these giant buildings that sit empty all the time, 
And I'm like, that's exactly right. That is exactly what we do. And because the buildings are so impressive, right? And we're like, we need them. We need these buildings. Why do we need such amazing buildings? Because we can't compete with the church down the street for the Christians if we don't have the best facilities, that type of thing. And I, I, I hate to put it that starkly or that nakedly because, you know, I, I, there are good motivations mixed in there also. But a lot of times we don't realize what the motivations that are really, you know, moving us as leaders. And so many churches get into trouble. They buy these humongous buildings. And now they're beholden to their mortgages. Now they start to promote elders for financial reasons as opposed to, you know, for for maturity and things like that. I've seen that happen all the time. And I'm like, you know, there is a place for buildings. I, I do think buildings are important. But I want to see churches that use their buildings 95% of the times, right? Where the buildings are filled with praise and prayer. This is what we need. We need Christians, right, to be not spectators, right? We've turned it into this performance thing where Christians come, they sit and they watch the the leader minister and they go, okay, good, I got my, you know, I did my duty for the week. And I'm like, no, it's the opposite. The purpose of the minister is to train you to do effective ministry. So if your understanding is you just sit and watch and you feel, you know, you get a little bit closer to God or something like that, but you don't actually do the work of ministry no, we're missing the point of all the finances that the Lord is giving to us. Yes. The whole point of, of professional ministers is Ephesians 4. God, Jesus gave gifts to the church, the apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, right, to equip the saints for the work of service, right? So the saints are equipped to do the work of service, and then the saints are building up the body, right? And that's the picture it's supposed to be. You don't really get that in, you know, the the predominant form of church now where it's basically a very few people, the professional ministers ministering to everybody else, you know, and what it does is it creates a culture where everybody's a hearer of the word rather than a doer of the word. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and it's so destructive. People don't know what their callings are. They don't know what their calling is. They don't know what their gifts are. They don't know how to hear the Lord or how to really engage in the work of ministry. And again, I'm not trying to say everyone. There's lots of churches that are, are, are doing good stuff. I'm just saying the predominant picture of Christianity that we see in America is like this, right? It's the reason why even now so much of evangelicalism is being pruned, right? I, I Many of my evangelical friends no longer identify as evangelical. They're still Christian, many of them, right? Well, many of them are not Christian anymore. Like we say, st- stats say that we're losing... of our young people that are going to high school, you know, youth groups, when they go to college, 50% of them fall away from the Lord. And that's pretty, that that lines up pretty well with what I've seen, you know, pastoring young adults and college students, right? When I look at all the campus fellowships, I'm like, oh my gosh, they, they can't hang. Yeah. Right, you go to these campus fellowships. There's very little presence of God, very little missional um, fervor, passion. You know, very little like powerful ministry. I, I remember when I was in college, I was like, dude, I freaking hated my campus fellowship. I don't want to say hate. I it was tough for me there. Yeah, and I I found a prayer group where they were really following after the Lord seriously. And I was like, this this is great. This is what I need. I need people who are serious about their walk, serious about doing mission, serious about, you know, the kingdom, right? Get, being sacrificial in a serious way. And um, look, at a lot of campus fellowships, it, it it's not really like that. And I don't want to be too harsh, you know what I mean? I, yeah. It's always hard, you know. But look, we are not healthy, okay? As American church, we are not healthy, 
And because of that, we're being taken out everywhere and the and the the body of Christ is being pruned right now. And I think that that's a good thing. I think we need to be pruned. We need to be we need to be disciplined by the Lord, right? Like Scripture talks about a wise man desires discipline, is appreciative for discipline, yes. right? Wants to be disciplined, right? It's the it's the fool who resents discipline, okay? Yeah. And that's when we're talking about the judgments of God. So much of the church they don't even like to talk about the judgment of God, right? Like mm-hmm. it's a mean thing or something like that. I'm like, how do you arrive at this understanding? No, the judgments of God are so are are important, right? Like the Scripture praises them, right? The, the seas, you know, rejoice. The mountains rejoice because the judgments of God are coming, right? We, we want the judgments of God because we need them. They discipline us. They train us, right? And no discipline is pleasant while you're going through it, but it yields amazing, long-lasting fruit. And that's what we need in the American church. So I say that to say, look, a lot of churches are, are changing right now. I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing, I hope, right? I know a lot of evangelicals, former evangelicals, who are saying, I don't want to be identified as evangelical. The evangelicals are all pro-Trump crazies, you know, like me. (laughs) They're all pro-Trump crazies. I don't want to be identified like that. It's like vestiges of white supremacy. I'm not down with that. Well, what's happening is they're actually being pruned off of the body of Christ. You know, I don't don't think that's the way they think about it, obviously. But they're, they're... they're being cut off. Evangelicalism is being split, you know, not only over this issue, although this is one of the major issues, um, but I think what we're going to see is we're going to see a much tighter evangelicalism that is is more serious about the faith. You know, at the same time, we have this prayer movement that is growing and growing, and that's what I want to see. I want to see in this next generation, man, I want to see churches filled with prayer and worship 95% of the time, right, where we have houses of prayer operating in or, you know, amongst, you know, churches everywhere. I think every church moving forward should be connected in some way with a house of prayer or host a house of prayer, you know, um, so that that is such a life-giving part of the church. When you lose your value for prayer, you're going to lose your your heart burden for the kingdom of God. You're going to lose your value for missions. You're going to lose all that kind of stuff over time. So really recovering that that prioritization of intimacy, of prayer, and of, of worship in the church, that naturally fills you with the burden, the heart burden of God, and the fire to really um, do the work of ministry. And I, so I'm, I'm hopeful for everything that's happening, even though it looks like worse than ever, if you're just looking from a naturalistic perspective at the church, and it's like, oh my gosh, we've got all these churches, they're dying, and they're struggling, and churches are going out of business, and I look at it, I'm like, that's okay, that's okay, Right? That's okay. Let's allow this pruning, right, to re to to shake up the church in a way that will give us a pattern, a structure that is conducive to building up long-term passionate disciples that make a difference, right, yes. in their generation, okay? Yes. Now, I want to hone in on the unloving part. I mean, everything you said is spot on i mean we can end the podcast right now and and, you know it's uh it's encouraging and and i hear it and uh it's all about being on fire for christ right but on the flip side there are others who are saying no we're on fire for christ too you know and i don't want to judge them i don't know their hearts but and if i may be bold enough to say this i'm getting the feeling that well you know as we mentioned earlier we're being unloving that us doing this is being unloving. 
But I'm getting the feeling at the heart of the matter that there's actually a desire to please again, to please people. You know, you talked about that numbers. It's all about, you know, what the masses want. And I think that is one of the biggest problems right now. And so how do you tackle that? How do we encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ who are really worried about what other people are thinking? Because, yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I see that's stopping us from uniting, from uh, going uh, just against the grain of society. So what would you say to that? Is that in reference to just the tone of our discussion or in terms of like COVID and meeting together and stuff like that? I think just in general, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, meeting together. Well, you don't want to meet together because it's unloving. You're putting other people in danger. Uh, yeah. You know, what would people think? Like the, the Sean Foyt uh, yeah. re- revival, like, yeah. you know, people are seeing this guy as reckless. It doesn't care about people. Yeah. Even though there are a lot of people getting saved, getting baptized. Uh, yeah. Basically, it's not a good witness to, yeah. you know, to, to others. Yeah, I hate that argument. I hate it. This idea that it's unloving. Well, what do you think is motivating Sean Foyt? Is mm. it like he's just trying? He's just trying to get rich or something like that? Like, yeah, it's good. Question. Is that yeah. is that what he's after? Like, what's motivating him if you're if you're accusing him of being unloving? Right? right. At the least, you have to go. Well, look, he's trying to do the will of God. Right? He's trying to glorify Him. He just doesn't have a. a you know, an appreciation for the danger it causes people, something like that, right? Yeah. That's not, you can't accuse him of being unloving. You can accuse him of being deceived or something like that, right? But I, I just see that as a total disingenuous argument, right? Mm. Unloving. Give me a break. No, it's because we love God and we're trying to serve Him, and we're not so concerned about, you know, the point one percent mortality, rate, like the the off chance that one person could die. Isn't it more important? Right, that we have huge worship gatherings, right, where we're contending for the nation and we're worshiping God and we're doing all of these things. And might are we taking the chance that a, a person or two people or three people could die? Yeah, look, we're always taking a chance. You're taking a chance that they could drive in their cars and die. You're taking a chance that they could, you know, they could get in an accident. There's a million different chances that we take, but these are look, Christians in China are taking a much more serious risk by gathering yeah. together to worship. Yeah. Right? Like, all throughout history, Christians have taken risks to gather together to worship. And that's because, number one, we're commanded to in Scripture, right, do not stop meeting together. If anybody, you know, had a real uh, argument for that, it would have been those early churches where they were being, you know, put into lion's, you know, dens in the Colosseum and burned alive on crosses and things like that. They had a reason to consider not meeting together, right? Because yeah. that's pretty dangerous. But they continued to meet together. They continued, right, to do all the important things about fellowship because it's not about them. It's about the mission. Yeah. It's about yeah. the purpose. And I would say, you're just being narcissistic, right? Like, no, you know, my Aunt June, you know, I might get her sick. If I go, then you have the freedom not to go, okay? But Sean- I, I, I really think that's not true, though. You, okay. you know, I, I mean... Okay, they're saying that this virus is real. I'm not saying it's not real. You know, I'm not saying it's a hoax. I mean, it's a real virus. Yep. But they're saying everyone should quarantine, everyone should meet. But there's no one I know who's not following that to a T. For sure. Even the governor of California. Exactly. Everyone else too. Yeah. Exactly. So I think, all right, 
that it's the fear of man. It's buying into what the media is telling us. It's uh, they're, they're scared of being seen as a conspiracy theorist. So For just sure. to go ahead and just hone it to, they're scared of looking crazy. Yeah, I they're think scared that, of I think what society is going to think of them. You know, so when we look at scriptures, Christianity is unpopular. You can get persecuted, killed, mocked, sneered at. And I think we need to start waking up the church to that. Oh, for sure. That the persecution is coming. We, we have the LGBTQ uh, communities who are fervent in destroying religious freedom. Uh, Christianity is, is looked at as crazy and foreign, but we have other brothers, sisters in Christ who are trying to win culture even though they're accusing us of trying to win culture, that we're all about culture. I mean, that just, I'm, I'm getting really tired of hearing that argument, man. I mean, what oh, yeah. do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right on. Look, it's always hard because we're talking about people, right? Yeah. And we will have further episodes where we talk with people, you know, who disagree yeah. with us on some of these issues. Um, but yeah, look, persecution isn't coming. It's here. Yeah. Okay, it's here. Like we had a we had a situation a couple of years ago with um you know student senator at UC Berkeley, right? Isabella Chow, right? And she she abstained in a in a vote in her student senate to affirm, you know, gay transgender identity and stuff like that. She just abstained. She didn't even vote against it, right? And it became a national story cuz of, of the backlash and all the people. And anyways, I called pastors, you know, up in the Bay Area and I called Christian leaders and I said, "Hey, stand with her." Okay, she's getting she's getting attacked everywhere right now. They're calling her a bigot or a fundamentalist, all this kind of stuff. You stand with her and be like, no, she's a pretty normal Christian. We all believe this, okay? And we're not weirdos. We're normal Christians that have been, you know, in this country for a long time. We make a huge part of this country. And I was like, hey, stand with her. Put out a public statement, stand with her. Almost none of them would do it. Almost none of them would do it. And one leader that I talked to um, was like, look, a lot of us in the Bay, we work at tech companies you know, and um, if we if we publicly say that we think homosexuality is sinful, right, or anything like that, we could be put on blacklist, we could be fired, all that kind of stuff. And um, and I totally understand. I totally understand what he's talking about. That is a real reality in a lot of places. The persecution is here. Now the question is: Are you ashamed of Jesus's commands? Yeah. Are you ashamed of his commands? Because that's a, that's a real thing. And to be honest, there are a lot of Christians that don't understand a lot of these commands. They don't understand why, you know, homosexuality is sinful or why having sex outside of marriage is sinful. They don't know the logical reasons for this. And so they don't have the conviction to be able to stand publicly when they're going to get persecuted for it. And that's, that's where we're at right now. The persecution is here. And so I, I tell people, look, you can either... Get persecuted like this now where, you know, you might get fired or you might get people mad at you on social media or your uncle might not talk to you or something like that. Wow, that's that's pretty low-level persecution in the grand scheme of things. You can face the persecution now and fight in this battle or you can be silent and you can allow our nation to be taken over by these nefarious forces. And again, I'm not speaking about the people. I'm speaking about the spirit animating the people, the people, the spiritual forces behind the people. Okay. And again, I, th- I think we talked about that last time with Jordan Peterson, right? He talks about people don't have ideas. Ideas have people. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a much better way to understand this, right? You can fight against this thing now, 
or you can keep silent and and essentially you're being taken out of the battle. And that's the thing. That's your calling. Your calling is the battle for nations. So this idea, you know, that you know, I'm living my best life now <laughs> to steal a Joel Osteenism, right? I, I'm I'm living in my calling. You if you're engaged in the battle for nations, you're living in your calling to some degree. But look, living in your calling is painful because it's an adventure. There's real danger. Okay? You can engage in that now, or you can be silent and look, are you living in your calling? No, you're forfeiting your calling. You're abandoning your calling. And to be fair, that's because most Christians don't understand what the heck their calling is. They think their calling is to be a doctor or something like that. So they have to shut up. And they don't understand, no, the calling is to infect your nation with righteousness. That is your calling. And so when there is a battle over an issue of righteousness and you run from the battle and you keep silent, look, I think there are times where it might be wiser to do that. But the general rule of thumb is no, you've got to you've got to confront it. You have to speak out in areas where you have conviction. Yeah. So I look, the, the the persecution is here now. Okay? And if and this is the this is the reason why nations fall to communism. You only you don't need the majority of people to have a communist revolution. You need ten percent. You need ten percent and then you just need to intimidate the rest. Yeah. That's always the way it works, and that's the way it's that's the way it is right now in America. And I tell Christians, look, Scripture says, if you speak out and you're persecuted and slandered for the sake of righteousness, you should rejoice, because yeah. your reward is great in heaven. And a lot of Christians are like, oh yeah, you know, I don't really get persecuted, you know, and I'm like, that's because you're not saying the stuff that would get you persecuted. Okay, for any Christian, I have I have good news for you. I know a way that you can get some great rewards in heaven now, <laughs> right? Like, you know, like it, it, if you really believe that, you know, you could speak out on some of these things. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying you should just troll yeah, people yeah. Or, or say stupid yeah. things. I'm saying in areas where you have conviction, where you have real con- conviction, and you know it's controversial, well, you have an opportunity to speak out, right, and get some persecution. And that, if I think if we believe Scripture, we should be excited for that, you know? Not, you know, not in a masochistic sense, but glad that we have the honor of standing for Christ, you know, in the midst of all of this type of persecution. Yeah, and we're not saying to be reckless and just go out there and just start saying every controversial thing under the sun. But I think now is the time. There are moments where we need to stand up and speak out. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I think uh, a lot of people are just really, really intimidated, scared, and worried. And uh, uh, there's yeah. really not much example right now. And forgive me, I'm, I'm always calling out mega churches. Uh, it's not my heart, but I'm, I'm just looking at examples of leaders out there who are bold to stand up for righteousness. Yeah, well, it's, it's all the non-Christians, man. It's all the Jews. God bless those Orthodox Jews, yeah. like Ben Shapiro and Dennis Prager. They're standing, yeah. and, and Jordan Peterson, who's not even like an evangelical Christian, yeah. right? They're yeah. they're defending. They're the greatest defenders of the Bible right now in our culture. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. Uh, so what do we do, Dennis? What do we do? How do we gather righteous well, remnant? <laughs> Yeah, well, look, I think, look, I'm, I'm excited for all this. Yeah. I'm excited for what's happening, right? I'm not discouraged by this. I, I'm pretty confident we're going to win this battle against, you know, Marxism, right? This mm-hmm. flavor of Marxism. Now, this is a cyclical battle, so I'm sure it'll pop up in another nefarious form, yeah. right? 
because well, before I go there, I think we're going to win this battle. So mm-hmm. I'm excited for everything that's going on right now. I'm actually really hopeful if this Trump thing, you know, if Trump gets reelected, I'm hopeful what that's going to mean is that we're going to have to uncover a lot of the hidden corruption. And I actually think Trump is doing an amazing job. He like when I when I look back and I think about, you know, man, I almost voted for I would have voted for Marco Rubio over, you know, over Donald Trump. I'm like, oh, my gosh, even even then, you know, that wasn't that long ago. But so much has been uncovered, you know, and I think so many of Trump's unique strengths have been, you know, uh, revealed here in these times. He he could fight when no one else would fight in his shoes. Right. And I'm hopeful what that's going to happen is we're going to see all this corruption uncovered, man. And this is what we need. We need we need a wake up call for mainstream America. Mainstream America has not had that wake up call. They're kind of in there. Right. Some of them are are starting. Like I see some moderate, you know, Democrats who are starting to sound the alarm a little bit towards the far left of their party. Right. But for the most part, there has not been a mass wake-up call, you know, to really shift the nation fully. I think that's coming pretty soon. I think we're going to have it pretty soon. And so, I say that because I think that also is going to correlate with what's going on in the church, bro. I think what's going on in the church is we're going to have a whole new um, bunch of leaders that God is raising up right now. And I've seen this, you know, prophetically, I've seen this, I feel like God has been training many leaders um, in relative secrecy, right? And I don't mean they're being literally hidden, I just mean they're not, you know, they don't have huge platforms right now. And I think that they are being trained by all the adversity, right? All the difficulty and the hardship, and I think God's training up hundreds maybe thousands of these leaders i think i see all these women leaders in particular Mm -hmm. i feel like many women are going to arise in this next generation to be phenomenal leaders in the body of christ and to you know to clarify there i think they're many of the for most of them maybe their primary area of leadership will be outside the church right so they're going to be leaders in politics they're going to be leaders in various organizations you're starting to see a number of them a lot of the most influential leaders right now um many of them are women that are having an incredible impact. I'm thinking of people like Lila Rose and like Candace Owens. And I, I feel like many more of these these female leaders in particular are going to be rising up. So, so And it looks different. It looks different. And that's, it's going to, their leadership looks different. When you look at Candace Owens, she's not, you know, a, a, a person that would normally, you know, be the, the, the trusted media source, right? <laughs> Um, but it's the same thing with Trump. Trump is a different kind of politician. He doesn't fit that mold of like very respectable appearing, right? And we're going to have a lot of new leaders that don't fit that mold. And I would argue that's an old mo- mold now, right? Guys like Joe Biden, that guy's a dinosaur, right? Um, but the Bushes, they're dinosaurs. You know, their, their time, I, I think, is largely over. We're going to have a bunch of new leaders that are a different mold and that they're not priorita- prioritizing the appearance of credibility. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. Like yeah. that's like Obama is like the epitome of this, right? He, every action and word that he says is designed to increase his coolness and his credibility, right? So you're never getting the honest Obama. I have no idea what Obama's actually like, right? 
because he'll never show what he's actually like. He'll never show any weakness or anything like that. Right? You're only getting the mask of Obama because he is the greatest politician. You know, he's he's the best at that. Right? You're gonna get a whole bunch of leaders that are rising up that are not polished like that. Mm-hmm. They're not polished. They're honest. They're genuine. Um, and they have real conviction, and they're not afraid to show some of their flaws. Yeah. Right? And uh, these are actually better leaders in a lot of ways, right? What, we, what people don't understand is, you know, and this is true, especially in the church, when we're talking about megachurch and stuff like that, right? In the past, people have wanted leaders that hide all their flaws. That, and that's why you get this political thing where, like, people who are super charismatic and they're good at hiding their flaws and only giving, you know, very well you know, prepped presentations and stuff like that. These are the leaders that people have been have been trusting in the past generations. But what's happening now is all that stuff is being exposed and people are trying to understand, no, you're not seeing their real, the real person who they are. That's not who they are. The person that they present is not who they really are. And God is raising up honest leaders. And I think there's going to be a lot of these honest leaders that really, they show their weaknesses, um, but they're they're they have real strengths, right? A lot of times when I think about the old leadership versus the new leadership, the old leadership, it's like you know they just try to hide their weaknesses, you know. But the new leadership, you're going to be able to see a lot of their weaknesses, but you're also going to see their tremendous strengths. And I'm thinking about like like Bevelyn Beatty, right? That girl, you know, she just puts it all out there, right? And sometimes you're like, ooh, wow, that was harsh, <laughs> and. But you can see her strength so strong, you know? She's not polished. Why? Because she's not caring so much about who she's offending or who she's bothering, but she's caring more about, you know, accomplishing the purpose to which she feels called, and she's just going to do everything that she can, warts and all, to get there. So, Paul, I'm super excited, man. I think we're in the midst of a great sea change, you know, and I think we have some major battles ahead of us. And I think the hardships, you know, I've seen a lot of memes that people say 2020 is the worst year ever. And I'm like, you ain't seen nothing yet. Come on. That is some pampered stuff right there. 2020, the worst year ever. 2020 has actually been really, really nice. Okay. We've, we haven't run out of food. We haven't had a world war, right? It's been super nice, you know, and we've all been sp- able to spend time with our families a lot more. Well, many of us. No, no, no. 2020 is relatively great compared to the hardships and the difficulties that we're going to have ahead of us. And what we need are we need leaders that can take us through those types of difficulties, those types of hardships, and to train and prepare the body. The body has to be trained and prepared for what is coming. And we're not going to get there with, you know, five ways to be more loving, like those types of sermons, right? Five things you can do, right, to you know, be a better husband, right? Like, uh, to be clear, those some, there's real wisdom in those types of sermons. But we need real training, right? We need real maturity. We need leaders that can really take us through the hardships that we need to go through as a body to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Training and perseverance, I think, is yeah. what's needed right now. Training yeah. how to uh, get ready for persecution. Yeah. And I don't think we've really been trained in that area. Oh, sure. yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just want to tell believers everywhere, like, start to speak out on things on social media. It is such a great little training ground. <laughs> you know, like learning how to bear petty insults, yeah, right? right? Learning how to, to forgive people. Because, look, if you want to tackle serious persecution, you've got to learn to handle this low-level persecution. Okay, this low-level persecution, look, 
I don't want to downplay it because it's really hard for a lot of people. Okay, I get it, but bear it. If you have a conviction in your heart, speak out on it and yeah. expect that you're going to get people to to you know come at you. Fine, yeah. let them come at you. All right. If you get if you get fired from your job, fine. In my opinion, like I, there's a lot of people that would say don't do that if it's going to cost you your job, and I'm like, are you going to starve? That's yeah. my answer. Are you going to starve to death in the richest country in the history of the world? Right? You realize if you're, you know, if you're unemployed, you know, there's like food stamps, you know, there's like, you know, there's welfare, there's Medicare, you know, like you're not going to die. Like nobody's yeah. dying over here, right? Like but what you have is you have an opportunity to grow, to really grow in your ability to face adversity and to trust in God, right, to lead you and guide you in your life. And so I'm just saying this nationally to everybody because I know lots of Christians are in this position. And I'm like, hey, if you can, try and stand firm in the things that you know you have conviction of and learn to speak it out Right and to and to champion these causes and expect that you're going to get rejected and that's fine. This is all great training because we're going to need this because God's calling us. I'm just saying, look, if you can't take a little bit of persecution and hardship from people here, how are you going to handle real serious strongholds that God's going to call you to over to to attack and to take down in future yeah. in future times? And I'm like, look, start here, start start with this and and do it. Seriously, and that means number one, yes, I think finding a community where you can be encouraged in that is actually really important. Yeah, that's really important. Yeah. Right? You gotta find a community of brothers and sisters that can encourage you in it and to grow in it. And um, I think that's happening right now. We're gonna see, you know, uh, communities start to form, right, that have more of this type of DNA, right? And um, and that's a that's a glorious thing, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, what's what's the benefit of that? You know, uh, getting getting persecuted. Let, let's talk about the upside of being persecuted. Why should a Christian rejoice at the fact that they are getting persecuted? What are some rewards that come with it? Yes. Um, yeah, the rewards. You know, look. And I know we talked about this in, in, in the, our, our first episode, and I really want to touch on this again because that's so yeah. important. Yeah. Because in this world, you may not get benefits of it, but yeah. in the coming age. Oh, yeah. yeah. So uh, my understanding is, look, in this life, this life is a, is a test. And yeah. so every everything that we're supposed to be doing in this life is supposed to be oriented towards success and fruit in the next life. Yeah. Right? Everything here is training. It's a real training. A lot of people think, you know, you know, we're going to get to heaven, and then boom, we're going to be changed. We're going to be instantly perfected, and we're going to be infinitely wise all of a sudden. I really don't think that's how it's going to work, right? There's a purpose for this life, and that the training that we get in this life is going to be useful to us in the next life. And we're going to grow, and we're going to learn in the next life also, right? And we're going to have responsibilities, and we're going to have jobs, and all that kind of stuff. So demonstrating faithfulness now, this is like, this life is like the SAT, Okay. You know, you take the SAT to go to college, right? This life is like the SAT, right? And it's going to position you, right, in the next life. And so understanding what the criteria is and how to do well on the test of this life, it's actually really, really important. So that's why the idea of persecution is really important because the question is, are you going to do what's right when it's hard, right? That is one of the primary criteria in which we're being graded on this life. Are we going to do... What's right when it's hard? Meaning, in this context, are we going to um, 
be influenced more by God or by people. And yeah. I think that's a huge, huge criteria for how God chooses rulers, right? What you see is that you have to demonstrate that you fear God more than you fear man to be considered worthy of authority. Because when you're given authority, the greatest thing to corrupt that authority is your fear or ability to be influenced by people rather than your conviction to do what's right even though it upsets people, right? It's the same thing with parents, right? If you're constantly afraid that your kids are going to you know, cry and scream and all this kind of stuff, and so you don't discipline them or you don't tell them no. You know, you do. You produce some pretty terrible kids. You know, or pretty spoiled that don't aren't disciplined. All this kind of stuff. No, to be to to rightly hold authority, you have to be willing to say no. You have to be willing to discipline. You have to be willing to correct, and you have to be able to do it without getting offended. Right? A lot of a lot of parents they don't discipline until they get so upset and angry and mad at their kid that they they unleash at them. That's not healthy discipline, right? Yeah. No, no, no. Right discipline is you're not affected by your kids' tantrums. You see through their manipulations because every kid manipulates, you know, mm-hmm. right? You see through it and you give them the things that they need, not what they want, right, to help them to become mature. Well, it's, it's very similar now, right? It's very similar now. So the question is, are you going to follow the crowds, right, even though Jesus says, you know, the way is broad and the gate is large, right, is, is, is big that leads to destruction or you're going to follow the narrow path right mm-hmm. where, where few people find it you have to learn to go against the grain now you have yeah. to learn to go against the grain now and that's look when we're talking about persecution there's various kinds of persecution when you're evangelizing you're getting persecuted right because you're yeah. probably getting rejected a lot right and these days some people are going to be angry at you and all, all sorts of stuff like that right well that's you're going to face persecution okay when you're being faithful in prayer Okay, you're not necessarily facing persecution usually. Well, sometimes you are, but it's it's very difficult. It's hard. Nobody wants to get up early in the morning and you know do all this kind of prayer stuff. I know you know a lot of times people think, oh, it's just those those people like to pray, right? Or those people are called to pray, and I'm not called to pray. I'm like, no, okay, nobody likes to pray initially. Yeah. Okay, yeah. no, I mean, you have to yeah. develop the habit of it. Right? It's, it's just work. Like, it's hard work. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's just like working out. Nobody likes to work out at first. Yeah. It's just when you develop the habit of it and your body gets used to it and stuff like that, then you 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 don't dread it as much. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. like there's more grace for it. It's the same thing with all the spiritual disciplines. So all of these things matter now. I, I tell people, look, if you don't get the disciplines of prayer and scripture study in a serious way— well, those are like the, the, the entry to authority. You can't be trusted with serious authority in the kingdom if you don't get the basics down, right? Yeah. You got to get the basics down and show sustained um, conviction and you know discipline in doing them, and then you're entrusted with more. Do you obey the convictions that you're given, right? All of these things happen. So sorry, another super long-winded answer to your question, but what are the, what are the, the benefits for overcoming hardship? That's the only path to maturity. Okay, you can't be mature in the body without overcoming hardship. That's why scripture says in James, right? It says, um, oh, shoot, I'm mixing up all my scriptures. You know, we rejoice in these trials, right? That's Romans 5, right? We rejoice in these trials, knowing the trials lead to perseverance and character and hope, right? James, right? Um, you know, Con- consider it, consider yeah, it. Consider yeah, consider it joy, right? Yeah. My brothers, right, when you face trials of various kinds, right? Knowing that these trials, right, lead to maturity. There's a clear path, right? The trials are necessary for you to become mature, meaning if you don't lack nothing. 
Yeah. You can't be mature. Yeah. So you've got to go through the trials. You've got to go through the hardships, and you have to overcome them. It's not enough just to go through them and suffer through them, although that's mm-hmm. a huge part of it. You've got to overcome them, right? It's like boot camp. you got to th- go through the, the hardships of serious, rigorous training and discipline for you to be ready for combat. And it's the yeah. same way here, right? You got to you got to do it, and that's the hard part right now. When we have so many churches that aren't that aren't really trying to train their people, then what you do, you get a lot of Christians who aren't used to hardship. They're not used to adversity. They're not used to this idea of, you know, going to missions and fasting and all this kind of stuff. No, we've got to train believers who can do all this because this is the type of stuff that you need to win nations, right? To yeah. take nations, and we need to get that mentality back in the church. Well, let's talk about that real quick, about nations, because that's, you know, to be honest, that's new to me. You know, oftentimes when we think of discipling uh, or discipleship, it's just the other person. Uh, but you often talk about, you know, discipling nations. Yeah. So so what does that mean? How does that look like? How do we win a nation over and why is that important to God? Yeah, man, that's a whole podcast right there. Yeah. Um, Man, I, I seem to always ask questions that's like... Well, they're good. <laughs> and the problem is I'm. it makes me talk forever, but whatever. Yes, Discipling Nations, I think, is actually one of the most neglected um, biblical values. And that's because in the history, you know, in, in, our, in our history of Protestantism, you know, Western culture has become very individualistic, right? So we always apply these scriptures individually. But that's a huge reason why we misunderstand so many of them. The Hebrew and the Jewish mind was really corporately oriented, right? The promises of God were not given to individuals, they were given to the nation. And you shared in those promises to the degree that you were part of the nation, right? And you were faithful to the nation's covenant and things like that. So I say that to say a lot of Christians, they, they're just thinking about their own personal walk with God. They're thinking about, you know, um, you know, I just need to have my own relationship with God and be faithful. And I shouldn't tell other people what they should be doing because that's about their walk with God and what they got to do, and they're really, you know, you're going to misunderstand so much of Scripture that way. No, much of Scripture is actually concerned with the destiny of nations, right? And the and the great, com- the great Commission is to go into the nations, disciple the nations, right? Baptize the nations in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the Holy Spirit. And a lot of people just interpret this as, okay, try and go into, you know, the nations of the world and convert individuals. And I understand that, and that is an aspect of it, but really it's more nationalistic in understanding, right? And mm-hmm. um, it, would take, it would take a long episode, I think, for us to break all of that down. Let me just try and give, you know, some, some basic key points here, though. Um... God is concerned with the destiny of, of nations as a whole, right? And when Scripture uses that that you know that word for nations, it's it's really ethnicities, it's races, right? And it makes a distinction between nations and kingdoms. Okay, so kingdoms are what we would think of as modern um, states, right? Like America is a kingdom, something like that, right? But it's composed of many nations. But oftentimes there's a correlation between a nation and a kingdom, right? Like Germany is like mm-hmm. mostly ethnic Germans, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of discipling nations, discipling ethnic cultures, because ethnicities are basically large families, right, from Scripture's point of view. And this is the part where a lot of people don't understand how this works. God is very concerned with the destinies of nations, meaning the discipling of family lines over generations, 
okay? That's why the command is given to the Israelites, right? Here's the revelation given to you through Moses. Now teach your children, right? Don't let them forget the things that I've done. Deuteronomy chapter 8, right? If you forget these things, right, then you'll be judged harshly. And what you see throughout Israel's history is a battle for righteousness to hold firmly to the conviction of the revelation of Yahweh, right? Let's be faithful to Yahweh. Let's devote ourselves to him. And then what you see is different people in the community start worshiping other gods. And God sends prophets to them and say, no, you're not supposed to do this, right? Because we as a nation are set apart for Yahweh, right? And we're to worship Yahweh alone. And what you see in Israel is there's this battle for national righteousness. And that's all throughout their history. I would argue that that is really a prototype. Okay, Israel is a prototype for the rest of the nations. What happens, and um, you know, theologically, I would really recommend a guy named Michael Heiser. Okay, for those who have never heard of Michael Heiser, he is the theologian in residence at Logos Bible Software. He's a phenomenal theologian. He's not charismatic, which I think helps his credibility amongst non-charismatics, right? But he talks a good amount about the Hebrew mindset and the worldview of ancient Israel. And the idea here is that Israel was set apart you know, for Yahweh, and the other nations of the earth were given to other gods, right? Or other spiritual beings you could think about, okay? And that's how we get the entire pantheon of gods in the Old Covenant, Old Testament period, right? That's where Greek mythology comes from. That's where, you know, Babylonian mythology comes from. They all believed that gods ruled over peoples, right? And and then, um, but Israel was, was given to Yahweh, right? Well, this paradigm is actually really helpful for understanding the New Testament paradigm. Because what happens? Jesus, through the cross, wins authority over all nations, right? Meaning, prior to the cross, various nations are given by the Father to other spiritual powers. But after the cross, all authority in heaven and earth is given to the Son. Okay, that's that's actually the the best understanding of the significance of the cross. Okay, and that, you know, there's a big debate in theology between theories of atonement. Are you familiar with theories of atonement, Paul? Mm -hmm. I don't want to yeah. speak too far over your your head, but you're you're way more educated on this. Than I think the average viewer is. So let me try and break this down a little bit more for more, more most people. Okay, the theory of atonement that dominates you know Western Christianity is called penal substitution. Okay, penal substitution is the idea that God you know has to punish sin, and so you know um, people sin you know since Adam they got a sinful nature, and so he has to punish them all, but he chose to put all that punishment for people's sin on the Son. Okay, and so as a as a substitution, Jesus paid the price for our sins. That's why the cross is important. Okay. So that should sound pretty normal to most evangelicals today. That's because that is our dominant theory of of atonement, okay? But that theory of atonement did not really come, you know, into prominence until, you know, the Reformation period. You know, it, it's really an evolution of a theory of atonement called satisfaction theory that was developed around 1000 AD. And so my point is the early church didn't really understand the cross in that way primarily. Okay, the early church understood the significance of the cross is that on the cross, Jesus won a great battle over the powers and the principalities. Okay, that's why the cross is important. And that is a theory of atonement called Christus Victor. And that's why you're going to see that theory of atonement is actually spoken very explicitly in a number of New Testament passages. But for many Western Christians, we hear about that and we don't really understand it. Right? We're like, yeah, Jesus won a battle against the powers. 
we don't really get why that's significant. You yeah. know, it, it's like, okay, cool, you know, but he paid for my sins, right? And I, God, the Father would have punished me, and he, and he put the punishment on the Son, and that's why I'm eternally great. And we have a much more heartfelt connection with penal yeah. substitution, okay? But it's now, both and, right? Yeah, said, that's yeah. what I would argue. I think both yeah. are actually really important, right? Yeah. But having a value for Christ's victory is important because it helps us understand this idea of clashing kingdoms, yeah. Right. I would argue that the strongest theme in scripture is kingdom. But again, for Western Christians, the, the theme of kingdom doesn't really make that much sense. Yeah. Right. Because it's like, what is this idea about kingdoms? And yeah, of course, like Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings. And we're all kings. Right. What, what's what's the issue here? But they don't understand from from heaven's perspective, there are many kingdoms. Right. And there are many spiritual rulers. Right. And now the the son has been given authority over all the nations of the earth and that's why he sent out his ambassadors right who are the apostles into all the nations telling them that now all of them owe their obedience to Jesus right yeah. that Jesus the son now has authority over all the other sons of god okay and again that terminology can be really confusing if you're not familiar um with some of this theology, but that's the idea that the sons of God are the princes, right? The principalities, right? New Testament refers to them. And now, because they're in rebellion against Jesus, who's been given authority by the Father, now there's this war for the nations of the earth. Does that make sense? Makes I'm sense, trying to yeah. I'm trying to summarize like a lot of theology in like five, ten minutes, but I'll, I'll just say this. That's why the scriptures are actually so concerned over the destiny of nations and the idea of discipling nations. Right, because it's n it's not really about your personal walk with God. Okay, that is important, but it's really important in the context of your ability to affect the war, the spiritual war that's wait raging between the princes of heaven, right, and the Son of God. Right, that's where that's Psalm two. Right, the kings of the earth, right, rage against the Lord and His anointed one, and all this kind of stuff. And there is this war that's happening for the nations of the earth. And I would argue, understanding the nature of that war is where we find our personal calling. Okay? Yeah. A lot of people, a lot of the way calling gets taught about today is, you know, hey, what do you like to do? <laughs> you know, what do you really like to do? What job would you love to have? What are you good at? And what are you bad at? Okay, and you take your gift mix, and you take the things that you like to do, and you take some of the things that God has told you over the year of life, and you're like, my calling is to be a doctor, or something like that. And I have to say, I think that is the absolute worst way to find your calling. Okay, that's not your calling. Okay, Jesus' calling was not to be a carpenter. It wasn't his profession. And Paul's calling was not to be a tent maker. That was his profession. Those are not their callings, okay? Our callings come into you know, are part of a great national calling, okay? When I look at Martin Luther King Jr., okay? Phenomenal speaker, amazing pastor, obviously, okay? But it's not like, the way that he found his calling was not like, hey, you know, I think I'm really good at the speaking thing, and you know, like, I'm like pretty good at talking to black people, you know, about, you know, about justice issues. No, it, what, he was burdened for a national issue of righteousness, and he gave himself to that burden, right? So the best way to find your calling is to humble yourself, surrender your life, and say, God, what would what do you care about? What do you care about in the earth? And you give yourself to the purposes of God, right? 
that's how you find your calling. It's you deny yourself, yeah. you deny what you want to do, and you present yourself as a servant to God. You say, God, no, what do you want, right? What's your desire? And you start doing what he wants rather than what you want. Yeah. That is really how you start progressing in your calling. And there's see, there's a lot of good teachings about that, about denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him, which is why Christianity you know, does lead people into their callings, God, thank, thankfully. But all the teaching about find yourself and you know what do you love to do and all that kind of stuff, I always say, look, that is just the wrong way of looking at it. Okay, it really is. No, no, no. Throw yourself into what God is doing in the nation. Get conviction about what God wants to see happen in the nation. And then be a servant to that. And then if you're faithful little, he'll give you more. And he'll yeah. develop you more and more in the calling that he has for you. And that way, your calling doesn't get mixed up with, like, if I get fired from my job, oh, my gosh, but God, I thought I was called to be a doctor, right? Mm -hmm. How can I get fired, right? Or, you know, it's you're, it's not so work intermixed with this idea of worldly success. Yeah. That's what gets people so messed up. You got to throw out all of that kind of stuff because to be faithful in your calling in God often means that you're going to suffer in your worldly profession, in your worldly career, and things like that. And a lot because a lot of believers don't do that, they think, "Oh, but you know, I've got a calling to impact my business, right? And to be a leader at this business. So I can't I can't, you know, say something controversial, right? I've got to get promoted here." And I'm like, "Look, Maybe for some people, I, I want to make a provision that some people might have an, an, a, a command from the Lord to do that, and that that does happen. But look, for most people, I just don't think you can think of it like that, because what's going to happen is you're constantly be tempted to compromise, and that's what a lot of believers do. Yeah. If anybody wants to know more about this, what resources would you point them to? You, you mentioned Michael Heiser. What, what yeah. books does he have for this? So Michael Heiser has a phenomenal book called The Unseen Realm, okay? Now, that is the academic version. Yeah. Um, I would recommend the layman's version. I think it's called Supernatural. Okay. Um, I took a number of my students I was discipling through that book. It's very easy reading. It's pretty fun. Um, yeah. And it gives you a whole paradigm on what he calls the divine council, and that's the whole idea of the sons of God and all these principalities. Who are they in the, in the Old Testament and things like that, okay? Yeah. So I would recommend that. Um, you know, our generation doesn't like to read. <laughs> you know? yeah. So if you're not really a reader, that's okay. There's um, a podcast. I think it's called Naked Bible Podcast, mm -hmm. and there's a there's a lot of YouTube videos. If you just type in YouTube Divine Counsel, Michael Heiser, you can find a lot of stuff. You know, there. I think that's a really helpful paradigm um, for you know getting this. And then the other book that I would recommend to people, and I, I, I tend to recommend these two a lot to people who are concerned, who like theology, and want to say theology. There's a book called Salvation by Allegiance Alone by um, Barnes, Matt Barnes, Michael Barnes, I, 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 Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Yeah. And um, yeah, I hope I got his name right. But he is a facilitator on a, on a theology podcast, but he does a great job of synthesizing a number of great theological fields and um, you know ideas and putting them into this into this book where he basically makes the argument that when Scripture talks about faith, it really should best be understood as allegiance. And that is exactly right on, okay? What's happened in Western Christianity is that we have, you know, interpreted faith as this idea of, you know, of, of creed, of doctrine, right? You have to get your doctrine right in order to be saved, something like that. And the thing is, I think that that is correct. It's just not really hitting the mark of what Scripture really means by faith. Okay, yeah. when you put your faith in Christ, 
really from a uh, you know biblical standpoint that's really giving your allegiance to him right as a as a king as a ruler that really hits much closer i think to the mark of what the scriptures mean by that and so that gives a much better understanding and it fits into the whole paradigm of kingdom right that's we're part we're subjects of this kingdom we owe him our obedience and um and our allegiance and that and that's the basis on which we'll be judged and that i think would help clear up a lot of confusion for people who have been taught you know i just got to get my doctrine right as long as i believe these things and i say that one sinner's prayer i'm good to go right yeah and I think that they really miss it because, you know, no scripture does talk about works and why works are important because they evidence real faith. And what faith means is this idea of allegiance. So doctrine yeah. is important in that scheme. It's not unimportant. It's just not the central primary thing like it is um, in, in the beliefs of a lot of Western Christians. So those are the two books that I'd really recommend for a lot of um, believers just to get this paradigm that I think is helpful. And the other guy, you know, look, Lou Engel talks a lot, has a heart. See, what's interesting is Lou has gotten a lot of this from prophetic revelation, just prophetic revelation. God wants abortion abolished in America. I, I keep, We keep getting dreams, all these dreams about this, right? Mm-hmm. Well, why does that matter? Well, because God cares about national righteousness, yeah. right? So he gets to a similar place from a different, a different avenue, right? Um, but, you know, I think it's helpful to have both, to understand the theology of why this is important, to get the systematic thinking of it, and then to also combine that with the prophetic revelation of what all these prophets are saying that always seem to talk about issues of national righteousness. Yeah. Wow. Uh, we impact a lot today, Dennis, and I appreciate this. Uh, so, Allegiance, what was that, that book again? Just to go ahead and repeat Salvation that. Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Salvation by Allegiance Alone, an Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, th- th- this whole thing on national national destiny is, is, is new to a lot of Christians or they, they're not familiar with it. So I would love to unpack this a bit more on our next podcast because I can tell there's, there's still a lot that we're missing here. So Oh yeah, and that's fun for me. I love talking theology. Yeah. By the way, his name is Matthew Bates. So sorry, I called him Barnes. Got it. You heretic, you. (laughs) (laughs) But D, thanks for your time, man. We've definitely talked about a lot of things today, and uh, I look forward to our next one. For Um, sure, bro. Yeah, yeah. So, guys, stay tuned for our next episode, and uh, thank you for joining uh, Righteous Remnant. Uh, Yeah. God bless you guys. Have a good one.